0: Welcome to the Car Stories Podcast, brought to you by the Peterson Automotive Museum. My name is Kyle Hyatt. My uh, co-host, James McKeon, is uh, unfortunately not with us today. He uh, had a prior engagement, but we're lucky enough to have Mr. Peter Mullen here with us. And uh, you probably have heard Peter's name uh, if you're interested in collecting cars or if you're interested in French cars especially. Uh, He has arguably the world's greatest collection of pre-war French automobiles, and uh, he is the uh, chairman of the board of directors for the Peterson Museum. He is the founder of the Mullen Automotive Museum in Oxnard, and uh, thank you for coming to the podcast, Peter. Kyle, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, I guess getting started, you started collecting cars sometime in your 40s, is that correct?
1: Yes, about 35 years ago, so that was in my... Early forties sure
0: well that, that's i mean uh, that's kind of late in life, I think, for some people. A lot of people kind of get that bug earlier what what really spurred you into collecting cars and and what you know gave you what what caused you to lean more towards the the French deco period
1: cars Well, you're right, it was late to pick up a passion for French cars, although it wasn't. My first interest in cars. I started off in life as a son of a chemical engineer that worked for Mobil Oil and uh, was responsible for developing the special synthetic oils that Mobil used in boats and cars. And Mm. so my dad used to take me to car races and boat races and talk to me about coefficient of friction and lubrication and (laughs) <laughs> Other boring things at the time. Sure. Uh, and, but that gave me an early interest in cars. And by the time I was maybe eight or nine, not European cars for sure, but American cars, I could identify mm-hmm. every car coming down the street with my pals. So it was an early hardwired interest.
0: Sure. So in Europe, I mean, you're born and bred Southern Californian, so you must have been surrounded by all kinds of amazing Americana. From that period,
1: sure. And of course, about the time I was uh, an early teenager was the mid fifties, and uh, you know all of the great muscle cars of the mid fifties that we all oogled and awed about. Sure, with the big engines and the sexy bodies, Mm -hmm. uh, you know caused us all to say when we grow up and uh, get a real job and get out of school we're going to own one of these well sure sure and i mean that's what you did <laughs> and ultimately that's what i did although <clears throat> my first car was a 1954 chevrolet bel-air convertible well it's not a bad way to start out which was a beautiful car painted sierra gold with a cream top and uh uh, striped by Von Dutch, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Um, so that was a great start. Yeah, it's pretty
0: incredible. <clears throat> what happened to that car? Did you, I mean, does it sort of go the way that many first cars do and lost to time? Or
1: Well, I drove it uh, back and forth to uh, to college, uh, UC Santa Barbara, every weekend or every couple of weekends for until I graduated. Mm-hmm. I had rebuilt the car with a friend of mine who knew what he was doing. I didn't. Uh, and when we finished uh, rebuilding the entire engine and the transmission and the braking system and the rear end, et cetera, we had this box of parts left over. Oh, no. <laughs> and we kept looking at the parts and saying, well, they belong somewhere, but we can't figure out where. And the car ran great without the parts, so – I just put them in the back of the trunk, and when I ultimately sold the car after I graduated from college uh, to the new owner, uh, I took him around to the back, opened the trunk, and I said, you know, someday you're going to want one of these Johnson rods, but I have no idea where they go and what they do. And he laughed and said, well, he was glad to have it. And I talked to him years later. He said he never needed any of them, so they must have been doing something, but we never figured out quite what.
0: All right. Well, yeah. So I guess segueing back to the, the the French cars, I mean, you, yeah, as I said, you, you know, in, in your 40s, you kind of developed this passion. Um, was it one specific event that really turned you on to these cars?
1: It was a specific event. Uh, I had a friend of mine who called me and asked if he could use the front facade of our home, which was uh, Paul Williams' home from the 20s, uh, as the backdrop for a car calendar. And so I said sure. And when I got home from the office that day, parked in front of our house was a 1948 Chapron-bodied Delahaye, and it was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen in my life—the rolling sculpture, the colors, the style styling. It was an M.S., so it had the big, powerful engine. And I didn't know anything about French cars. I didn't know anything about Delahays. I couldn't pronounce it. I couldn't spell it. Uh <laughs> but I asked a lot of questions and ultimately uh we restored together a uh Tabalago record car from the same era, nineteen forty eight, and uh took it to Pebble Beach. I'd never been to Pebble Beach before. We showed it at Pebble Beach, we won a, an award, which I kinda figured was what happened when you restored a car and took it to Pebble Beach without really realizing well, sure. it. that's not exactly what really happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, they give those to everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. So
1: that got me hooked, and it got me particularly hooked on French cars sure. because I thought they, pre-war and just post-war, the French cars were the apex of combination of automotive museum and rolling sculpture and elegance and engineering, and I was hooked from that point on on French cars.
0: Wow. That I I can completely understand. I mean, I went to your museum, I guess it was about a year ago now, maybe almost two, and uh, uh, to the previous iteration of the Art of Bugatti show. And I had never really been exposed to that sort of pre-war French deco period of cars. And, I, you know, seeing them in photos is one thing. You don't really get a sense of scope or scale, um, the, the kind of the purity of line that many of those cars have. Um, so, I mean, definitely, it definitely made me a convert. Um, what are some of your favorite uh, of the great
1: coach builders? I mean, you mentioned Chaperone. um Well, what? my favorite without question was Fagoni and mm-hmm. Uh And they did a number of pre-war cars, Stella Hayes, Talbolagos, that are absolutely a Bugatti, that are absolutely stunning, stunning cars and uh, Fagani himself was a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh artist, draftsman, conceiver and Filosky was his business partner that kind of tried to keep the wheels from coming off the business. <laughs> uh but together they created some of the greatest of the great.
0: It's true. They um
1: Salchek was another one that was uh, a fantastic uh carrossier. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, we've been lucky enough to have several of his cars. John Bugatti himself, the son of Ettore, mm-hmm. uh at age 20 was designing cars that, uh, you know, are at the peak of uh, the uh, collector's appreciation cycle still today. And a variety of other uh, designers uh, that had, you know, big impact on my love, Porteux. Uh, but it had big impact on uh, my love of French cars because they all probably took a page out of each other's book, but they sure. all uh absolutely were intrigued with the natural sculptural lines of nature. Mm-hmm. When people talk about a Fibonacci curve, that's a mathematical curve, but if you say, where did it come from? I mean, it came from seashells and roses and the universe and the inside of a beautiful woman's ear, the way it curves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, those were all part of nature. I mean, God created the Fibonacci curve. We just named it. And Joseph Fagoni figured out early that he didn't need to start with a blank piece of paper. He could look around and see what really intrigued him about what he saw.
0: Sure. One of the things that I find really interesting about the Art Deco period of cars is that you know, Art Deco, in terms of architecture, is very much—it's a very vertical style. There's a lot of angles. It's very kind of—it's um, uh, more industrial inspired. And but so many of these, the shapes of these cars, as you mentioned, the Fibonacci sequence are very organic and almost um, Art Nouveau. Um, why do you think they—they they kind of? Why? why I guess what I'm getting at is what do you think You know, are, are some of the, the best examples of, of the blending of those two styles where there's that, that very angular mechanical feel and, and then also the very organic?
1: Well, you ask a very good question. Now, if you talk about industrial styling, you have to remember that the Art Deco movement, which started actually literally in 1925 at the Exhibition des Arts Décoratifs mm-hmm. uh, in France, And the objective was to take, essentially, industrial items and the conclusion was uh, just because it works well doesn't have to make it ugly. So the Art Deco movement started with automobiles and vacuum cleaners and radios and clocks and architecture and the idea was to take everyday highly useful things and make them beautiful to look at, to touch. And in the uh, architectural styling, it had to do with uh, putting those beautiful angles on the sides of buildings. Uh, if you look at the Empire State Building as an example, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful Art Deco building. And the more you look at it, the prettier it looks. And although there are angular architectural features to it, there's also circles and uh intaglio uh designs uh, on the building itself. And when it came to cars, I mean, it was just kind of a natural because uh a lovely curved design on the front end of a car or the back end of a car actually allowed it to slip through the air a little faster mm-hmm. than something that was boxy. So it was intelligence from an engineering standpoint. It also turned out to be uh, very beautiful from a pure organic sense of uh, a piece of sculpture. Hmm.
0: That's a really uh, interesting way to put that. Thank you. Uh, I guess one of the, the the big reason for you coming to the podcast is that we're opening um, the newest and, and certainly uh, most amazing uh, collection of artwork by the Bugatti family. Uh, it's called The Art of Bugatti. It opens to the public on Sunday. Um, and what about the bugatti family has kind of captured your imagination i mean this is a large portion of your uh, automobile collection is dedicated to uh, the bugattis and uh, i think you know there's a great deal of uh, sculpture furniture that kind of thing from uh, rembrandt and carlo bugatti uh, respectively like what about what about them has sort of captured your imagination r- continually for this long
1: It took me a while after I became intrigued with French cars to actually embrace Bugattis. First I, like many people, thought that Bugatti might have been an Italian car because the Mm -hmm. name is certainly Italian, but I quickly learned that no, all the great Bugattis were made in France. But once of course I became intrigued, really I became intrigued with the Bugatti cars first that Ettore and then later his son, Jean Bugatti, designed. Sure. And, you know, an interest in them and their family caused me to read about the Bugatti family. And then all of a sudden I realized, I mean, a whole window and door opened up, which was, what an extraordinary family that went uh, over multiple generations, where both artistry, artisanship, and engineering went from father to son, son to daughter, daughter to sister. So if you look back and realize that, you know, Carlo Bugatti from the late 1800s uh, started creating furniture that shocked people. I mean, it was Moroccan in style. It used, uh, stretched goatskins and, uh, copper and ivory inlaid. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful pieces that are, was, that are very M- Moroccan styled. And he also, later in life became a silversmith, people said, no, no, you can't be a silversmith, it takes 30 years. And he said, well, you're probably right, but I think I'll try. And within a year, he was winning huge prizes for his silversmithing. And he also built uh, uh, musical instruments mm-hmm. uh, and cabinetry. And he was a painter. He painted some phenomenal paintings of his wife, Uh, Therese and uh, his daughter-in-law, Barbara, that was married to Ettore and the daughter, Lydia, Uh, oil paintings of people, which is the hardest possible thing to do, including hands and eyes and cheeks and hair lines, etc. Sure. So there was the father or the grandfather that started the movement along with his brother-in-law was an artist also that uh, influenced Ettore. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, then the whole family kind of rolled out. There was a Torre. He was actually the one they thought wasn't much of an artist, so they sent him to engineering school. Turns out, Bugatti is known probably more for Torre Bugatti than for any of the other Bugatti family members. Certainly, but. He he was a genius engineer, but if you look at the parts inside his engines, I mean, he never took a straight line if he could make a curve. <laughs> and he didn't care whether you could see it or not, because he knew what was inside his engines. So you take them apart, and every piece is a beautiful piece of art. And, of course, his son John carried on the tradition of great styling and design. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Lydia Bugatti was a terrific painter. She painted predominantly, or she painted a lot of, uh, cars, correct? Well, she painted cars, she painted car mascots, but she's painted uh, pictures of her sister and herself, uh, driving cars. So she hmm. was, uh, was a good artist, not just for, for cars, but sure. for automobilia. Uh, another sister, Lieb, uh, was a writer, and thank God she was an author, writer because she's the one that recorded the family history and put it down in books. Otherwise, we wouldn't know as much about the family as we did. Mm -hmm. Rembrandt Bugatti, who was Ettore's younger brother, turned out to be maybe the absolute greatest animal sculpture of all time. Tragically, uh, died early in life uh, at age 31, Uh, because he was so depressed by the war and by the fact that they had to kill all the animals uh, in the zoo in Belgium Mm -hmm. because they didn't have adequate food and water for these animals. And that's where he spent all his time was sculpting animals at the zoo. He became so familiar with the zookeepers and the animals that they let him take animals home from a zoo and put into a studio and have him stand on a table where he sculpted them. So when you look at his sculpture you don't see a picture of a cow or a horse or a deer what you see is a real deer a real portrait of a real animal mm-hmm. and that was the difference between him and other sculptors that could do a great horse but they couldn't do a real live horse that you could recognize its personality so yeah that
0: is that is one thing that's that's interesting seeing a lot of his sculpture for the first time is that Uh, I mean, despite being cast in bronze, it's, it does feel very lifelike and not, not in that it's always, you know, it's very clearly not like an meant to be, uh, you know, an exact reproduction there, there's artist license there, but it feels you you can feel a personality kind of come through, I think, especially with the, um, some of the, 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 the cats that he did. I think especially just the way that he's got them walking or the way the tails are, are set at just the right angle to kind of, right. yeah, it's very incredible. Well,
1: he was very interested in what went on inside the skin of an animal. So mm-hmm. he understood bone structure and organs. And so he really sculpted, in effect, from the inside out, which is like a crazy thing to say when you talk about a cast bronze. But, But when you look underneath the skin and you visualize what's behind that, you see that he really had the animal's skeletal structure, organic structure, fat, uh, all properly in place. So that's what gives you the sense that, I mean, they can almost walk off of their stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this,
0: this exhibition of the Bugatti's family work, it includes um, many of your own uh, personal cars. Uh, it includes cars from uh, some of the newer Bugattis from... Uh, presumably uh, Bugatti of North America. There's a, a Chiron there for, uh, that'll be there for a couple of weeks. There's a, a Veyron uh, as well. There's, um, uh, one of the, but one of the more incredible, uh, vehicles in the collection or in the exhibition rather, uh, is the Bugatti Royale. Um, which again, going back to Rembrandt, uh, he sculpted the famous, uh, rearing elephant, uh, hood mascot for that. Um, could you give us a little bit of background on, on the Royale because it was a very unique project for them, and um, it's an incredibly rare car. So to, to be able to see one is not something that everybody gets to do. So,
1: no, you're right, Kyle. Uh, <clears throat> by the way, the uh, the Veyron and the Chiron and the Royale are all uh, thanks to uh, Bugatti in Europe. Uh, oh, fantastic. And uh, Bugatti is now owned by Volkswagen Group. Mm-hmm. And Bentley and Bugatti are uh, a company run by the same set of senior executives. Uh, but they were gracious enough to both loan us those cars and allow them to be here at this exhibition. You mentioned the Chiron. I think this Chiron, which is the brand new Bugatti that will set the new world speed record, and it's just an incredible piece of engineering will be here at the Peterson longer than it's ever been in the United States. So this is a one-off chance for people to see the new Chiron, which maybe they caught a glimpse of at the Geneva Auto Show pictures, or there was one at Pebble Beach for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But it'll be here for, I think, three to four weeks. The Royale will be here for about six months, and that's an extraordinary story because the six Royales were made by Ettore Bugatti. Uh, massive cars with huge engines, 12-liter engines. And uh, the Royale was really a concept that was designed for the royal families of Europe, that each of the royal families in France, in Spain, in England, etc., would have a Royale, uh, thus the name Royal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they were intended to be owned by the top families. It turned out, actually, that none of the Royals were owned by a royal family. <laughs> uh, and the war broke out, and the Royals were tucked away. And, you know, one went to a dentist in Minneapolis, and a couple of them stayed in Ettore Bugatti's shed. And, mm-hmm. uh Another one went, uh, actually to Southern California. So there's only six of them. Uh, they'll never be duplicated again. They're massive, long couple, 22 feet, I think long.
0: Yeah. It's but, a very imposing car. The, the very wheels tall. are tall. I mean,
1: I'm a big guy and I stand there and I have to stand on my tiptoes to look in the window. So mm-hmm. you can see how tall it is. And, uh The beauty is that when you drive them, and I've had a chance, luckily enough, to drive one, you'd think anything that, I don't even know how heavy it is, exactly 6,000 pounds or something. Sure. That you'd think that, uh, you know, it would be unwieldy to move around, but it's not. Hmm. So it was, uh, of course, a genius piece of engineering. And it turned out that they weren't selling, but the engines were amazing. So they just decided to put them in trains, and they ran the trains in France uh, after the war for years because the Royale engine was powerful enough to run a train. Wow. That's uh, you couldn't make that up. <laughs> well, and one of the train engines is here in the exhibit so people can see it's. Yeah, that is a... it's, it's on display and it's massive. It's a huge piece of uh, huge 20, piece of metal. 22
0: liter, I think. Oh my goodness. Um, so you mentioned uh, the royals being kind of hidden away during the war. Um, that seems to be a pretty common theme for a lot of cars in your collection there was i think the the uh million franc Delahaye, which uh you know obviously had to be hidden away from the nazis there was uh the type 165 i think was the divorced from its original engine and then hidden away and, and and stuff uh what are i guess what 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 does it take to kind of undertake that that process of finding cars that have been were taken apart you know 60, 70, 80, whatever years ago, and then reunite them. Because you've done that a couple of times, it seems like. And, and it's,
1: it's always an incredible story. Um, well, first, I think that stories, I mean, cars are great. The stories behind cars are even greater. So I, I love the notion that you make a car come alive by the story of how it came to be and where it was and who owned it. And mm-hmm. if it was hidden away from the Nazis, why and who found it and how did that exactly work? Um, but, uh, for me, uh, as a passionate collector, actually the effort of searching and finding and validating. First, you hear about something, you know, this is, yeah, I think there's one of those in a barn in northern France. Nobody's seen it for 30 years. So you start digging and you ask questions, and one person takes you to another. And sometimes it's a dead end, and sometimes you say, oh, my gosh, it's really here. And then to find it, and then to find out who owns it, and then to see whether the family that's owned it for 60, 70, 80 years, as you said, Mm -hmm. is willing to part with it, and what condition is it in, and then the whole process of bringing it back to originality. Because frequently they were not taken care of in heated Uh, sealed, uh, humidity-controlled buildings. I mean, they were in an old shed someplace. Mm -hmm. So, frankly, for me, the more than half of the fun is searching and finding and bringing it back to what it was. And then I love to put it on display for the public to see it and appreciate it.
0: Sure. And I think that's one thing that that sort of sets your collection apart from many other um, very notable collections, especially with cars of, of this period, is that your collection is kind of a living and breathing collection. Many of the cars are kept in running condition. They get out. You you have them. I mean, you're, you usually bring you know three four uh, cars at least to, to Pebble Beach every year. You uh, you know there are cars that are displayed at other uh, shows throughout the country, throughout the world. Um, what what made you want to? I mean, it's obviously, it's a lot easier to to take these cars and lock them away forever and just watch their values climb. What made you specifically want to share this with the world?
1: Well, that's a great question. And it has to do with the mentality of the collector. And that is, you have to ask yourself, why do you collect anything, whether it's stamps or cars or furniture or jewelry? Mm -hmm. And some collectors do because they just like the notion that they own the best or one of the best. Some collectors, and I fall into that category, have a kind of a different mindset, which is we don't really own these items. We're a caretaker for a period of time. Most of the cars that we have in our collection were made before I was born, and they'll be here a long time after I'm gone. So I view my role as being a protector, a curator, a preserver of these special pieces of art. And if you have that mentality, you say, why would you want to do that? And it would be to show others uh, and allow others to learn. So it's an educational effort. It's an appreciation effort, uh, which is to allow others to see and walk around and learn and see on the road because the car is not meant to be a static object. The car is meant to be seen driving. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Pebble Beach. I mean, we brought eight cars to Monterey this year, which is a little crazy, but... That's quite an operation. <laughs> three, But three we took to the racetrack and raced at Laguna Seca, and that was great. And four we showed at Pebble Beach and one at uh, Quail. And... Uh, So it was a big effort, but it was a worthwhile effort, and we enjoyed every single bit of that. But I think that kind of goes with the mentality of of caretaking and displaying and educating as opposed to owning and tucking away that only a private small number of people could ever see them.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, taking some cars out to the racetrack. Uh, I mean, that's... (laughs) The idea, I think, to a lot of people, of taking a you know a priceless Bugatti Type 35 Grand Prix car out and then just opening it up, letting it go, running it out on track, is uh, that's a pretty scary proposition. But it's it's something that you seem to do fairly regularly. What uh, what drives you to want to do that?
1: Well, first, is my view about what a car really is, mm-hmm. and a car is meant to be driven, and they're made to go fast, and so to say it's never going to see a track, it's never going to go more than 20 miles an hour, seems to me kind of a crime uh, given what it is. So it would be like owning a great horse but saying, you know, it never gets out of its stall. Mm-hmm. So um it, there is some risk, obviously, in taking a, a high-dollar-value car out on a track. But I've been racing cars for uh 35, 40 years, and uh, it's never come back to haunt me. Uh, the other drivers tend to be quite good sure. drivers, and we all know that uh, we're not going to give up our day job, so of course. this is fun. This is not trying to win. Uh, so nobody dives into corners without enough room, and so it's actually been quite safe. That's good. Uh, and the cars themselves, I mean, because roll bars are non-existent in these early cars. So, you know, you don't really want to get in an accident, but, uh, I can tell you that a uh, number of times I've even had a close call in 35, 40 years is I could count on one hand. So,
0: hmm. so recently on the podcast, we had, um, a gentleman named John Bothwell from a company called Persang. And, uh, one of the, the, they're, they're best known for doing, Replicas, very carefully constructed replicas of the Bugatti Grand Prix cars, specifically the Type 35 and also a lot of other pre-war Grand Prix cars. And with, with, with the idea that people can, you know, take them out, race them, drive them as they've been you know, intended to and, and enjoy them fully without necessarily having to worry about ruining a piece of history as, as somebody that's so, you know, passionate about the, the real things. What is, what is your take on something like that? Is it, do, do you view, view view it as as a um, uh, a way to get more people interested in these cars or do you view it as as a, a kind of a, a a challenge to sort of the the real cars or how does that
1: well there's a lot of different views about that my own take is that persang uh, does an extraordinary job in building uh, uh, a a well conceived well executed replica mm-hmm. They don't attempt to claim that any of their cars are kind of long-lost real cars. Sure. The problem, of course, is several owners later, all of a sudden, a replica becomes a long-lost real car, and of course, that drives the car world crazy. Mm -hmm. So some people have the point of view that if it's not real and original and doesn't have a provenance that it doesn't belong, you know, on a racetrack with real Bugattis. Other people say, why not? It's, uh allows other people to enjoy automobiles that maybe would never have the opportunity to own an original one. So, I, you know, I listen, and both sides of the argument, I kind of come down that as long as no one's trying to pretend that it is something other than what it is, sure. that is fine with me.
0: That's good. I think it's an interesting take on it. Um, what getting away from, from cars a little bit, um, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you, you had a, a Paul Williams home. Um, do you have a, 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 do you have a passion for architecture?
1: Well, I do have a passion for architecture and I was lucky enough again, 35 years ago to, to buy a Paul Williams home, uh, didn't really know much about him uh, except that I loved the uh, southern colonial style. Mm-hmm. And then I learned about him, and it turns out he was a, a black architect in the 20s, uh, which was very unusual. Sure. And he uh, had an extraordinary list of clients. So he built a good part of uh, Sorority Row at UCLA, he built some of the great homes in West Los Angeles, uh, which was very unusual at the time. He mastered the art of drawing upside down. So when he sat down with uh, his clients-to-be and they kind of told him about the kind of house they were thinking about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a French chateau with a Chanard roof or whatever, he would say, you mean something like this? And he'd start sketching on a, piece of sketching paper upside down it's and pretty incredible. their house would emerge right underneath their eyes by his hand and they would say, oh my god that's exactly what I was <laughs> thinking about so uh, you can see why he ended up being so successful so I've met his granddaughter and uh, she's a wonderful person and a historian of the written a great book on the Paul Williams homes and uh, so that it kind of stimulated my architectural interest, but I've had an interest in architecture for a long time. I started off in life as an art major at UCLA. Okay. I Quickly realized that I would never survive as an artist because in the <laughs> class of twelve, eleven were better than I were, and sure, and they were all starving. So I figured <laughs> maybe maybe I should rethink this, and I switched to economics with an art minor, and that turned out to be a good thing. Yeah, that worked
0: out all right for everybody.
1: Yep. Well, I
0: want to thank you again very much for taking the time to stop by the podcast. It's uh, been a real pleasure talking to you and and, uh, having, you know, again, I want to uh, thank you uh, for helping to spark my personal interest in in these pre-war cars. Um, And uh, yeah, it's it's really, it's been wonderful to have you here. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again sometime in the future, hopefully. Thanks, Kyle. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. And and thank you guys for listening to uh, car stories brought to you by the Peterson automotive museum. Uh, we are really committed to bringing you amazing stories and uh, great interviews with people uh, much like Peter and uh, stay tuned and uh, you know, uh, watch this space for uh, more incredible interviews. Thank you. And don't forget to uh, come by the museum uh, starting on uh, Sunday, October 23rd. Uh, we have the art of Bugatti opening. It's an incredible celebration, an exhibition uh, of the Bugatti family's history, um, their amazing artworks, both in automobiles and uh, uh, other arts. Uh, it's, there's nothing like it anywhere in the world. Uh, it'll be open, uh, as I said, Sunday, October 23rd, for, and it'll be here at the Peterson for a year. So you got a little bit of time, but don't sleep on it because you're going to miss out. Um, if you come in the first couple of weeks, you'll be able to see the uh, Bugatti Chiron, which uh, is an unbelievably beautiful car. Uh, 1500 horsepower uh, they think it might near 300 miles an hour uh, when they try to do their speed run in 2018 it's uh it's pretty staggering so uh, thank you again and thanks for listening to car stories